Well, if you have your Bibles again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1272. If you're a guest with us, we've been working for a while now through the book of Titus, and we've made it this morning to the final chapter. We're going to be looking at the first two verses this morning, and I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject, remind them. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And this is what the Word of God says. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In Titus chapter 3, Paul transitions from how believers are to live in the church to how they are to live in society. From the roles and responsibilities of older men and women and younger men and women to the responsibilities of Christian citizens. This is a passage that is extremely relevant in light of the times in which you and I are living. Now Paul's overarching concern in this book is for the witness of Christians in the world. We see this emphasis in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, where Paul says that he has sent Titus to put in order what remains in the churches in Crete. We see it in Titus chapter 2 and verse 5, where he tells Titus that he wants the church to live in such a way that the word of God would not be reviled. We see it in Titus chapter 2 and verse 8, where he tells Titus that he wants the church to function in such a certain way so that no one has anything evil to say about the church. And we see it in Titus chapter 2 and verse 10, where he says the conduct of the church should adorn the doctrine of God. And we see it here in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. According to the Apostle Paul, our lives as Christians must portray a consistency between the salvation that we profess to have received in Jesus Christ and the way in which we live. And to that end, Paul commands Titus to engage in a ministry of reminding. Now Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, describes the importance of this ministry of reminding. And in verses 12 to 15 of 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this about the ministry of reminding. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. 
And Peter tells us clearly what Paul is emphasizing to Titus, that we engage in a ministry of reminders in proclaiming the word of God so that the people of God will be stirred up in their soul and their spirit to obey the truths of God. And so that the people of God at any time in their life would be able to recall these truths that God has called and commanded us to live. And so this whole beginning section in Titus chapter 3 lines up under the very first word of this chapter, the word remind. It is an imperative command, and it applies to every admission that Paul gives in this passage. It is in the present tense, meaning this is to be continuous in our lives. It is to be persistent in our lives. Now, notice carefully, friends, that these reminders flow naturally out of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, and Paul's teaching on the impact the grace of God has on the life of a believer. Paul admonished those Christians in Crete and us to live distinctly different lives by the power of God's grace in the midst of a culture that is hostile to the gospel and corrupted by moral sin at every turn. So these seven reminders are duties that apply to every Christian at all times. They are attitudes and they are actions that should characterize the life of every believer as they live in a hostile and morally corrupt world. And so this morning, I joined with the Apostle Paul and I joined with Peter and engage in a ministry of reminding you of these seven truths. Number one, remember to be submissive. He says in verse number one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This command pertains to our attitude and our conduct regarding secular government. And you'll notice in the text that Paul does not specify a particular kind or level of government or a particular kind or level of government official. In other words, he doesn't specify if you voted for this person or if you didn't, if you agree with this government or if you don't. He makes no specification. Additionally, he makes no allowances. Look carefully at the text for exceptions or qualifications to this command. He simply says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, to help you out and to help me out this morning, we need to remember that when Paul wrote this letter, Crete was under the control of the Roman government, a government that was thoroughly pagan, morally bankrupt, cruel, oppressive, and unjust. The Greek historian Polybius said it was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. And you thought we had it bad. And yet, in the midst of this hostile, corrupt, difficult culture, look at the text. 
Paul says, submit. This word submit is used all throughout Scripture. It is a uh, military word. It is used in reference to the believer's relationship to other believers in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. It is used in the believer's relationship to the government in Romans chapter 13. It is used in reference to a wife and her husband in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. It is used in reference to bond slaves and their masters in Titus chapter 2 and verse 9. And it is used here in verse number 1 with believers and their relationship to rulers and authorities. And like I've said to you before, this word submission is broken up into two parts. It means to be under and to arrange. So it's literally translated to line up under an arrangement. Or in other words, to line up under rulers and authorities over your life. Now listen carefully to me, friends, because you're going to struggle for the next probably 10 minutes in what I'm going to say from the text of Scripture. And by the way, keep your Bible open so you'll see that what I'm telling you is from the text of Scripture and not my personal opinion. The Bible teaches that every single legitimate authority, whether it is political, civil, military, ecclesiastical, church authority, or family authority, all comes from God. All authority comes from God as an act of his providential order in the world. And since God sovereignly and providentially establishes all authority, Paul says we are to submit to that authority. For when we submit to rulers and authorities, we are actually submitting to God because God is the one who has established the rulers and the authorities. Now Daniel, in his prophecy, reminds us that it is God who puts people and political parties into positions of power and authority. And in Daniel chapter 4, the Bible describes King Nebuchadnezzar walking around, looking over his vast kingdom, being full of pride, talking to himself, saying, look at what all I have built. And this prophecy comes in Daniel chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Listen carefully to the word of God. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, listen carefully, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's it. The president doesn't rule the world. God does. It is his kingdom. It is his power. It is his authority. And God gives authority to whom he will. The Apostle Paul made a similar statement to the Christians in Rome 
in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject or be submissive to the governing authorities. Now listen carefully to this text. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's it, friends. There is no authority except from God. And there is no one who has been given a platform or power or authority unless it's been instituted by God. And so Paul says to the Romans and to you and me in verse number 2 of Romans 13, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So Daniel says that the rulership of men belongs to God and God gives it to whomever he wills. And Paul says there is no authority except what comes from God and what has been instituted by God. And therefore, if you refuse to submit to this authority, you are actually refusing to submit to God. Peter gives a similar admonition to Christians who were under severe persecution in his day. And he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Be subject or submissive for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Listen. Honor the emperor. Peter begins this passage, be submissive to rulers and authorities. He ends the passage, honor rulers and authorities. And so what I'm trying to show you from the text of Scripture this morning is simply this, friends. It is clear from all of these passages that a person who resists and opposes human government resists and opposes God. Because God is the one who has established this rule and authority. Now, the application of this verse is simple. Since God has put rulers and authorities in power, we are to be submissive to them. But as simple as the application of this reminder is, we have to all be honest this morning that this text of Scripture rubs us the wrong way. There is an anti-authority mindset in every single one of us. There is an anti-authority mindset that pervades our culture. And there is an anti-authority mindset that is creeped into the life of the church. And some of us seem to think that we have a responsibility to submit to authority as only as long as we agree with that authority. Or as long as that authority is fair in our eyes. Or as long as that authority doesn't require too much inconvenience on our part. And so we come to rulers and authorities of any 
make in any area of our life with this anti-authority mindset. And the reason why Paul gives Titus this reminder and gives us this reminder is simply this. We need to remember that if as Christians we will not honor authority both inside and outside of the church, the word of God will lose credibility with unbelievers and the unbelieving world. Because friends, ultimately... A Christian that does not submit to God-appointed authority undermines the very word of God that they claim to love and believe. And this undermining of the authority of the word of God actually undermines the witness of the church to the lost in the world. And so Paul says to all of us, remember to submit. But secondly, he says, we need to remember to be obedient. And so if you thought the first point was bad, the second one is even worse. He simply says, look in the text, I'm not making this up, to be obedient. Being submissive to rulers and authorities involves being obedient to rulers and authorities. The word obedient that he uses literally means to listen to, to pay attention, or to be persuaded. It is used in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 to describe the way children are to listen to and obey and be persuaded by their parents. Now many scholars have pointed out that this was a much needed counsel for the Cretans because as I've already mentioned to you, their life under Roman rule was extremely difficult. And I would say to all of us this morning that this is a much needed reminder for us as well. We are living in a day where it seems all forms of secular authority are becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. And yet, the Bible is teaching us this morning that we have to recognize the sovereign providential hand of God in the appointment of this authority, no matter how anti-Christian it is, and we are to be submissive and obedient to it. In other words, we are to be law-abiding citizens. We may disagree with certain actions and decisions, and we may pray that in his mercy, God will one day give us better leaders. But we have to, based on the authority of the word of God, recognize that in God's sovereignty and in God's providence, he has placed certain leaders over us. And while this may be an act of judgment on his part for what you and I in this world deserves because of our sin and rebellion towards God, it is still our duty as Christians to submit and obey. That's what the text says. Now, I'm not making this up. In fact, If you wanted my personal opinion on it, I wish this verse wasn't in the text of Scripture. I wish I didn't have the conviction of preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. This is a verse I would gladly skip over and move on to. But it is as much inspired theology in the Word of God as anything else in the book of Titus. And friends, you can't pick and choose what you like and what you want and what you want to believe. 
This is what God says to his people. So then it begs the question, doesn't it? What is the extent of our submission and our obedience? Is there ever a place for biblical disobedience? Well, the Bible indicates clearly that there are limits to earthly authority. And when earthly rulers go beyond those limits, we have a responsibility as Christians to disobey. I'm going to give you several illustrations. Illustration number one. In Exodus chapter 1, we learn that when the Israelites were multiplying in Egypt, Pharaoh became afraid of their growing power. So he commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill every newborn baby boy. And in Exodus chapter 1 in verse 17, this is what the Bible says. But the midwives, listen, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. They disobeyed the king. Why? Because they had a greater allegiance to God and they feared him. And they disobeyed. Illustration number two. In Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose to be thrown into a fiery furnace rather than worship the golden image that their king had commanded them to worship. They refused to obey the king's command of idolatry. And they stayed true to the worship of the one true God. And they disobeyed. And in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel, at the risk of his life, he defied the king's decree that for 30 days, no one should pray to anyone other than the king. And again, he refused because he knew there is only one person to whom we pray, the one true and living God. And so in Daniel chapter 3 and chapter 6, we see the principle of disobedience. Third illustration. In the book of Acts, the apostles refused to stop preaching about Jesus when ordered to do so by the Jewish authorities. Acts chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, records Peter and John's response to the Sanhedrin. And this is what these verses say. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so they refused. They refused to obey that order. We cannot but help to preach and proclaim what we have seen and heard and experienced for ourselves through the life of Jesus. And their principle was succinctly stated in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than man. And that's it, friends. That's how you know when it's right to disobey rulers and authorities. When you have a responsibility to obey God rather than men. And so all three of these illustrations emphasize the same principle. There are times in our lives when the will of an earthly ruler will be in direct conflict with the word of God and the will of God. And in those moments, we are to submit to God rather than to men. So there is a place for biblical disobedience. I think of it this way. 
There is coming a time when the government is going to put pressure on the churches to capitulate further on marriage than what many churches have already done with transgender unions and homosexual unions and every other kind of union that they can try to come up with in their minds. And that's a simple response. No. No, God is clear what that means in terms of marriage. And we will not compromise or capitulate. Simple. No. Even if it means going to jail. No. We'll not do it. No. There may be times in your professional career where you are going to be forced by someone in authority over you to be involved in something that is clearly unethical and unbiblical. And in those moments, you're going to be forced with the decision whether or not to comply and to compromise your faith or to stand to your convictions and stand firm and true to God and His Word. You're already seeing it, friends. You're even seeing it in the city of Wheeling where they're talking about how you can't use the gospel to help people in counseling situations. Friends, the only hope that we have to offer in counseling situations is the gospel. Christ is the hope of the world. And when you eliminate that hope, even in the midst of a counseling situation, you are eliminating the greatest need that that person has in their life. And so we're going to be forced to make decisions. And I want to say to you this morning that even if it means that you lose your job, even if it means that you go to prison, or even if it means that you suffer a fate like the early Christians of death, you need to decide now where your allegiance lies. If you wait until that day, you've waited too long. You'll capitulate. You'll compromise. You'll go with the flow. And God calls us to a higher standard. You understand, friends, I'm not uh, being crazy in my thinking here. We are not far removed from people being put in jail because of their Christian beliefs. All you have to do is look at Canada and see the number of pastors they've arrested over the last two years. That border is not too far from ours. And so, we have a responsibility to obey God rather than men. And in our disobedience, listen carefully to me, it is to be passive. It is not to be active. We're not to be anarchists. We're not to be rebels. We're not to burn it down or tear it down. Nowhere does Scripture tell us to do that. Scripture tells us in humility, we refuse to submit and obey unbiblical commands while at the same time accepting the consequences of our disobedience. That's how we're to respond. Not burning it down, not tearing it down. Humbly refusing to obey and taking whatever consequences come. John Stott said, as Paul has explained in Romans 13, the state's authority has been delegated to it by God. This means that our first loyalty is to him whose authority it is. And if our duty to him comes into collision with our duty to the state, our duty to God takes precedence. That's it. However, 
when there is no clash between the will of God and the word of God and the will of government, we are to be submissive and obedient citizens, paying our taxes, wearing our seatbelts, following the speed limit, doing the laws of the land, even if we disagree. Do you know why Paul is saying this? For the advancement of the gospel. That Christians should be the best citizens of society. That we should live our lives in such a way that we are a blessing to the society and the community in which we live. And so we need to remember to be submissive and we need to remember to be obedient. Uh, They'll come much quicker now. Number three, we need to remember to be ready. Verse 1, remind them to be ready for every good work. So Paul is teaching us it's not enough for us to be law-abiding citizens. We are to be public-spirited citizens as well. Warren Wiersbe says this phrase means that we're to cooperate in those matters that involve the whole community. John MacArthur says we're to be known for what might be described as consistent, aggressive goodness. Done not simply out of duty, but out of love for our Lord and for other people. Uh, In this phrase, Paul is not speaking of reluctantly doing what we know we should do in society, but of willingly and sincerely being ready to perform every good work to those who are around us. And in this context, good works emphasize the sincere, loving, eager service we give to our community and those in our community who intersect with our lives, no matter how hostile our society may become. In other words, good citizenship flows from being a good Christian. And the Apostle Paul reminded the Ephesian believers, and he reminds us that one of the reasons that God saved us was for the purpose of good works. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I'll remind you this morning, That being a good person and doing good works doesn't save anyone. That good works come from a life that has been changed by the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good works flow from a life that has encountered Jesus Christ. A person who's been forgiven of their sins. A person who has been reconciled to the God who created them. A person who has been given a purpose and a direction for life through Jesus Christ. That is how good works flow from a life. And Paul's emphasis on these good works is a theme that is found in every chapter in the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, he used the concept of good works to show how the false teachers in the church were unfit for any good work. They didn't have the ability to perform good works because they didn't know Christ as their Savior. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul told Titus to tell the church that they are to show themselves in all respects as a model of good works. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul reminded them that Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to make us his own possession, so that we would be a people who are zealous for good works. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 8, we are told to be careful to devote ourselves 
to good works. And in Titus chapter 3 and verse 14, we are to learn to devote ourselves to good works. And so all through the book of Titus, Paul is teaching us that we are to live in the church and we are to live in the world in such a way that our good works commend other people to Jesus Christ. What it means, friends, is in the mundane of our everyday living, we are to magnify Jesus. We are to picture the gospel and we are to love people. In our homes, we are to do this. In our workplace, we are to do this. In our church, we are to do this. In our schools, we are to do this. In our neighborhoods, on our streets, while we're shopping, while we're at sporting events, while we're at social activities, Paul says that we should be ready for every good work in all of those moments. That we don't live compartmental lives as Christians. He said it this way to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're to do good to everyone. He says in Titus chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we are to be ready for every good work. Every good work for every person that we encounter, both inside the church and outside of the church. We are to remember that. How else will the light of Christ be displayed in the darkness of this world? If we, as God's people, do not do good works, both inside the church and outside the church, how will they see the light of Christ apart from that? And friends, if you're growing in your faith, and if you're connected to a biblical church, you should be equipped to do good works. The question is whether or not you're doing anything with what you've been given by God. Or are you just sitting on your laurels while everybody else does the good works? So we not only need to remember to be submissive and obedient and ready. Number four, we need to remember our speech. Verse two, to speak evil of no one. To blaspheme none is what it literally means. To speak evil is to curse or to slander or to treat someone with contempt. It is speech that disrespects or disregards the status of another by elevating your status at their expense. This type of speech includes insults and rumors and defamatory remarks and abusive language. And Paul in this passage is urging Christians to restrain their natural inclination to say the worst about other people. And look at the text. It couldn't be clearer. No such language should be heard from the mouths and lips of Christians. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, that we are to follow the example of Christ in this matter. He says in verse 22 of that chapter, Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in him. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
That's it. How do you keep from speaking evil? You entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. You remind yourself that this world is not final judgment. That every single person in this world has a date with deity. And on that day, there will be issued final judgment. And so until then, you entrust yourself to the God who judges justly. We need this reminder to carefully guard our speech. Have you ever thought about it this way? If social media didn't exist, you would be less prone to pop off without thinking about what you've said. You would be less prone to jump on Twitter and make your random, unhappy thoughts known to the rest of the world or to jump on Facebook and vent for all the world to see so that you can get attention and get sympathy from people who really actually don't even care about what's going on with you. And if those platforms didn't exist, you might pause and think about what you're saying about other people and the situations that you find yourselves in. Because in those moments, friends, let's be honest. You say things through social media that you would never, ever have the courage to say to that person's face. You would never have the boldness to do it. That's why you jump on the platforms and do it there. So you can be known and seen and heard. And Paul says, in the context of a hostile world, when it's all difficult and crumbling around us and the world is getting darker and darker and more and more evil and everybody is on edge and everybody is popping off and nobody is showing any kind of restraint you as Christians talk differently your speech should be different James Draper said, we are to be part of the solution and not the problem. Part of the healing and not the hurt. Part of the blessing and not the disease in society. We are not to give opportunity for that spirit within each of us that wants to reveal the worst that we know about others to gain at their expense. We are to be very careful about what we say, not only within the fellowship of the church, but also in the community. It's a sobering reminder, isn't it? Who among us this morning doesn't have something to confess after that statement? We not only need to remember to be submissive and obedient and ready and to guard our speech. Number five, we need to remember to be self-controlled. He says in verse two, to avoid quarreling. You could literally translate it, don't be a brawler. He's not talking about physical violence. He's talking about an argumentative, divisive spirit. In other words, Christians shouldn't live their lives looking for a fight or an argument. Do you know people like that? They're always walking around. They're always ready and up for a good fight and a good argument. And he says Christians aren't to be like that. We're to heal rather than to wound. We're to preserve peace rather than destroy it. And in this context, Paul is applying this statement to our relationships with believers and especially to our relationships with unbelievers. 
I love what John MacArthur said about this. He said, in an ungodly, immoral society, it is easy to become angry with those who corrupt it, condemning them and writing them off as hopeless and beyond the pale of God's grace. But we have no right to become hostile when unbelievers act like unbelievers. That's it. Why are you expecting the leaders of this nation to act like Christians when many of them are not? Why are you expecting your neighbors to act like Christians when many of them are not? Why are you expecting your co-workers to act like Christians when many of them are not? That's why they need you. That's why they need the gospel. But if you're so ticked off because they're acting like their nature, how could you ever give them the hope of the gospel in love and care and concern for the well-being of their soul? Unbelievers do what unbelievers do because they're unbelievers and they don't have Christ. And I'll remind you this morning, as he will remind you next week in verse number three, you were just like them. And the only difference between you and them is Jesus Christ and what he did for you. That's it. You're not a special snowflake. You've been graced and mercied by God. And if it weren't for him you would be in that same condition that you are so offended by. And so we are to, as Paul says in Romans 12, be at peace with all people, cultivating relationships and friendships as much as is possible in our lives. That's the antidote to the hatred, friends. It's the antidote to evil. Well, we not only need to remember to be submissive and obedient and ready and to guard our speech and to be self-controlled. Number six, we need to remember to be gentle. He says in verse two, be gentle. You could literally say it this way. It means to have a sweet reasonableness about your life. Isn't that a good description? That you would be known for being a sweet and reasonable person. A gentleness. A gentleness that's visible in your attitudes, in your actions, in your words, in your reactions. Paul told Timothy that when he was dealing with his opponents, when he was dealing with false teachers, when he was dealing with unbelievers, when he was dealing with a hostile word, world, that he should take on the nature and character of gentleness. And he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. A gentle spirit. Why? Because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Oh, friends, this is so helpful. Unbelievers act like unbelievers and do what they do because they are in allegiance with their father, the devil. 
And Paul tells Timothy, the way you combat that is that you exercise a gentleness about yourself, a sweet reasonableness, a patience of enduring evil, so that when you confront your opponents and share the truth of the gospel with them, God may use that gentleness to rescue them from their sin. The gospel is powerful enough to do that. And I'll remind you that this command to gentleness summarizes all the other commands that we've looked at. They all fall into this idea of gentleness. Well, we not only need to remember to be submissive and obedient and ready and to guard our speech and to be self-controlled and to be gentle, finally, we need to remember to be courteous and show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is the opposite of being self-assertive and self-interested. Vine says in his definition of this word, it means to not think of yourself at all. That to be courteous is to not think of yourself at all. And notice the context in which he says it. You're to be courteous to all people. You mean even those people that require extra grace and extra patience? I got to be courteous and nice to them? Well, they're all people, just like you are, all people. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Courteous. Forgive the way you've been forgiven. Humble, meek, kind, patient, forbearing with one another, courteous, a gentleness, a meekness, a courteousness about your life, no matter where you are or who you're around. William Hendrickson points out that it's not difficult to be courteous to some people, he says, but to show all mildness to all people, even to all those Cretan liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, was an assignment impossible of fulfillment apart from the grace of God. And that's it. That's the answer. You can't live any of these directives apart from the grace of God. Friends, these seven commands are not about you pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and your own work and your own power and your own ability. If, if you are listening to these seven commands and reminders properly, you should feel about this low right now. How do you expect me to live like that? And that's the whole point of the passage. It's to point you to the fact that apart from the grace of God, you can't live like that. There is no source of power in your life that will equip you, enable you to live like that apart from the grace of God. And that's why this passage is sandwiched between the two passages of the gospel in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 15 and Titus chapter 3 verses 3 to 8. And Paul is showing us in the midst of all these commandments that if we're going to live as Christians, we actually have to be Christians. 
And the only way we can be a Christian is to receive the grace of God through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognizing that apart from Christ, we are separated from God in our sin, in our rebellion, in our disobedience. And that when we couldn't get to God, God came to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that when Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, he lived it in your place and in my place. He lived a life that none of us could ever live. And that when he was nailed to the cross and he died on the cross for sin, he died for your sin and for my sin and for the sin of the world. And that when he was buried in the tomb, that was a picture of our death. And when he was raised from the grave, that is a picture of the resurrection life that we can have in Jesus Christ when we turn from our sins and trust him to be our savior. And when you know Christ as your Savior, you experience the grace of God. And the grace of God is the power that lets you obey the commands of God. And God is so good and loving and kind, He never gives you the commands to obey without the grace and the power to obey them. And so if you're a Christian this morning, you've experienced the grace of God and you have the power to live these seven commands, whether you like them or not. That's really not the issue. God didn't stop the book of Titus in Titus chapter 3 and say, hmm, I wonder if they're going to like what I'm about to say. No, he knew you needed to hear what he was about to say, and so he gave it to you in his word, and now he commands you to submit and obey to it. And the only way you can do that is through the grace of God and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't one person leave this room today And say, oh, the pastor taught us how to be a better person and to be a better citizen and to be better in society. No, I hope I've shown you, you can't do it apart from Christ. And when Christ, listen, it's the point of the passage. When Christ changes your life and empowers you to live like this, the gospel is displayed in a hostile, evil, anti-Christian pagan world and people look at you and they look at me and they say there's something different about them what's the difference and then we give them the hope that lies within us Jesus Christ that apart from him we would be just like them so dear brother and sister be stirred up by way of reminder for God and his glory. Let's pray.